Hi, I'm Craig Turner, host of the Founders for Good podcast. I've spent years working in the tech for good space, and in that time I've had the privilege of interviewing inspiring impact founders, and I want to share those conversations with you. Why? Because these are the people leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues, from climate to homelessness to health to education and much more. In these conversations, I dig into why these issues exist, possible solutions, how the founder and their business is approaching the problem, and their best kept secrets on how to build a for good company. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Katie Cottom is the founder of Luna Daily. At 19 years old, Katie was given antibiotics that changed her gut and skin microbiome, which meant she could no longer use traditional body care products. She was forced to use feminine hygiene products that left her feeling ashamed and embarrassed. After that experience, she created Luna Daily to fight the stigma attached to intimate skincare. A big part of this is education. People better understanding their body and needs, as well as what a healthy skincare routine looks like. The other aspect to this is creating a new category of product without stigma attached that supports women of all ages and stages and suitable for all skin types. Women shouldn't need to buy one product for their body and one for their vulva. In this episode, Katie enlightens me about the problems that exist, what needs to change and how Luna Daily are leading this movement. Hey Katie, really excited to have on the show today and chat to you about your journey and, and Luna Daily. How are you doing? I'm really well, thank you, Craig. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, no problem. So look, I um, always like to chat a bit about kind of background and, and want to chat to you a bit about your career, I guess, kind of pre-Luna. So I know you worked for some incredible brands. I was just reading through like Red Bull, L'Oreal, Charlotte Tilbury. Um, I guess, first of all, what, what attracted you to a, a career in kind of like consumer branding and marketing? Well, in the first instance, it wasn't intentional, actually. <laughs> I uh, went to university, I studied geography, um, and uh, actually, you know, geography was my degree, primarily because I wanted to study abroad, and Manchester Uni had a great study abroad program, so I went to Melbourne. But um, my segue into marketing actually was uh, starting working for Red Bull. So I wanted, needed a part-time job alongside university, and it was my mum, actually, that said a friend of friend's daughter was working for Red Bull. Uh, and so I randomly got in touch. And a week later, I was working as one of their wings girls. So basically, I was one of those girls that drove around those ridiculous minis. Uh, and I mean, what a profound start into the world of marketing and kind of word of mouth marketing <laughs> and building a pretty iconic brand within a pretty iconic product. And so it was that that really got kind of marketing my blood, really. I mean, I was so privileged to work for such a phenomenal marketing company. And after university, moved to London and worked for them full time uh, before I was um, approached to join the L'Oreal grad scheme. And, uh, you know, it had a pretty profound reputation in terms of a training ground for marketeers here in the UK. And so it's actually my boss at the time that said, you need to, you need to go and do this. I can't, I can't make you stay, but I'll steal you back in the future. And that was then my world into beauty wellness. Um, I think thereafter, my you know, I then had the opportunity after L'Oreal to go and join a very early stage plant-based food company called Bowl Foods. And the pool there was really, I'd always had this idea in my head about what I wanted to do running my own business and kind of going and finding, learning the ropes, I suppose, at a real startup. You know, it was it was in every sense of the world opposite to the experience I'd had at L'Oreal. You know, it, was, it started out just me and four guys in a little studio in Notting Hill uh and you know that was really my how you run a business experience and then most recently 
the pull to Charlotte Tilbury was to go and work for an incredible set of women and to learn a load of new skills back in the beauty wellness world. And that I definitely did. Uh, and so really long-winded way of saying the definitely initial pull was Red Bull. And still to this day, uh, it to me is an inspiration to, you know, having a really clear purpose and mission, delivering joy to consumers all the time and having real insight at the core of everything you do. But since then, uh, honestly, my career moves have been just sort of, they've just happened. They haven't been necessarily planned. It's just that an opportunity's come up and I've gone for it. And thankfully it's, it's worked out all right. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it sounds like you've got like a really nice blend of experiences, like from that really early stage startup to like a really iconic brand to like great leadership teams, pretty much the perfect balance, I think, to set you up for building building your own business. Um, before we chat about Luna Daily though, I do do want to chat to you a little bit about intimate skincare um, and just like the topic more generally. And I'm going to pause in advance. So I've got a lot of questions <laughs> to ask. I'm a father of two girls and grew up with all boys in the house. So um want to be able to, I guess, as they get older, have like open, healthy conversations in the household. So uh, to set the scene a little bit, like when it comes to women and intimate skincare, like what are some of the common issues that exist currently, some of the myths that you've heard, misconceptions that yeah, you've seen or heard so far? Uh, great question. Uh, so I suppose, um, where do I start? Uh, I think I could probably break it down into three key areas and I can probably only do that starting a bit about my own personal experience of my intimate skin, because that was honestly the, the aha moment, the reason for launching Luna Daily. So, um, I was 19 and I'd been studying in India. I came home and, I was really unwell. And so I was put on a course of antibiotics for six weeks. Uh, the result of which had a fundamental change to my gut microbiome, to my skin microbiome. From that moment onwards, I wasn't able to use traditional body care products to care for my intimate skin, but I really resented using the kind of niche use products available uh, that still today sits for the most part in a category called the feminine hygiene category. Uh, they're shrouded in shame. They're shrouded in embarrassment. Uh, and you know, that for me, ever since, ever since that moment, I felt there's an underserving opportunity for women. Um, and it turns out I'm not alone. So, um, you know, the first kind of, if I was to bucket the issues today, the first is a lack of education fuels confusion. So we're typically not talked about this at school. So in our research of a thousand women of all ages, stages and skin types, 87% of women we spoke to weren't taught about their intimate care routine at school. The result is that 80% of women cannot accurately label the vulva uh, when shown an anatomical diagram of the female anatomy. Uh, you know, certainly the, the word vulva was not in my vernacular a few years ago. I wasn't taught that word growing up. Uh, really worryingly, one in three women are washing inside the vagina. And so one of the biggest misconceptions is the difference between the vagina and the vulva. So very simply, the vagina is the internal part of the human anatomy. It's completely self-cleaning and so never needs to be washed, even with water. Uh, yet yeah, one in three women are still doing that. Uh, whereas the vulva is your external intimate skin. It's very similar to the skin under your arm- armpits, which is why you grow typically pubic hair in both regions. Uh, so this kind of, the big issue is kind of a lack of education, which um, fuels confusion. The second is that unfortunately, body washing products are causing problems for 43% of women. Their washing routine has caused a gynecological problem, probably in partnership with probably long wash, washing routines and the third thing is that the existing category of products from the incumbent brands are so deep-rootedly associated with the problem because women only really use them when they've had a problem that they kind of reinforce this embarrassment 
So 65% of women uh, said that, you know, if they saw one of the traditional products in the shower, they'd assume something was wrong, um, you know, even though somebody's just caring for their intimate skin. And so I think it's those three things that have kind of culminated in this kind of, ultimately, we don't really talk about it. And because we don't really talk about it, it's not normalized and it's seen as embarrassing or stigmatized or, you know, I'm the only one going through this. Uh, And the final thing, I suppose, is that's, you know, reinforced by unfortunately a lack of correct language that, you know, for so many people, myself growing up, the anatomical correct language wasn't used. And therefore that just reinforces the words ourselves themselves. Uh, You know, the reason our strap line is head, vulva, knees and toes is it's on the one hand a nursery rhyme we can all any age and stage can relate to for lots of us the word vulva wasn't part of that but also it's part of our mission to just try and normalize it like any other body parts you know we're not here to try and uh, be activistic or to force the conversation anyway we just want to normalize it like any other body parts because I truly believe you know if we can normalize conversation around intimate skin uh, we, we you know we step forward a big way in terms of removing the shame and stigma absolutely um, thank you for talking through that and uh, <laughs> loads of stuff to unpack there. Um, but it's, it's really true because doing my research, obviously, I, I saw a lot of this stuff that you, you talked about and um, had a couple of friends over and my girlfriend was there on Friday night and I asked them, do you know the difference in a vagina and a vulva? And my two friends had no idea. And even my girlfriend was like, kind of, I think it's this. And she got it right, but you could tell it was. And, it, you know, it just highlights the fact that actually we, I probably haven't heard that word since school, maybe, like biology lessons. <laughs> um, but it should just be like a normal, like normal term. What do you think in terms of, I guess, like a combined question, but in terms of, I guess, the two things are the same, like we're starting to remove some of this stigma and like the taboo around the topic of intimate skincare, as well as um, starting to use the right language. Um, I know you talked about like school and education. What what more can we be doing? Like, Is that conversations at home that we should be having more as like parents with our children, um, like friends? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, ultimately the education system in the UK, um, well, to any change to the education system will not happen quickly. It's not a quick fix. And so I think relying on making systemic changes in the education system isn't going to be enough. I think the single biggest thing I think we can do is normalise conversation, normalise anatomically correct language. Uh, there's been loads of studies done. And there's an amazing book by an author called Lynn Enright, who I absolutely adore. She wrote a book called Vagina, The Re-education, Re-Education. And she's got loads of references of, of A, what, why it's so important, uh, not just to do with, you know, the health, our health and the health of our skincare and our, our bodily function, but also uh, to do with removing shame and embarrassment, but also all the way to, you know, if if somebody needs to describe a medical problem or if somebody's being abused, you know, there's so many reasons why we need to normalise language. I think the simplest way to do it is just by a normal conversation. You know, if I take myself as an example, it was a word, you know, the vulva was a word I hadn't ever used growing up. I didn't use until my late 20s. When setting up the Loon Daily business, I remember I felt really embarrassed. That I was like, oh God, I don't want people to th- think that I'm one of those girls that gets thrush. And I was like, if I can't be not embarrassed about it, we've got no hope. And since, you know, I, I'm now proof of my own hypothesis, which is having talked about for three years, having been in loads of situations where probably the word vulva has never been used before, I'm just not, I'm not embarrassed anymore. I'm, you know, I'm not embarrassed by it. And every, I think every single time I tell my story, somebody says either, oh, actually, you know, this happened to me, or I was on a phone call earlier and the lady referenced something about her daughter, her teenage daughter. And that for me, combined with the fact that I'm just not embarrassed anymore, is such an inspiration to just getting it into the daily, daily conversation. 
um, because you know I, I am proof of that of that now that I'm no longer embarrassed. Hundred percent. And when you look, I guess, at like the beauty industry, because you mentioned this, it's like you know you don't want to badge products as a niche thing that's going to fix a certain problem because it's not a problem it's just a normal thing to be dealt with how like is it creating a slightly different category how should products be positioned um so that like the education's happening and you're using the right terminology but you're also not like making it super niche so it's like there's this problem that needs to be fixed because it's this niche product if you kind of see what i mean of course yeah i mean uh where lunar day is operating is we really feel like we're bridging two existing categories to create a new category altogether and so on the one hand, you have intimate care, which has existed for years, or the femme hygiene industry, which I hate the language. But, um, you know, these are niche use products that have been marketed to women. They are just for your intimate skin. So whilst they're formulated for intimate skin to be safe for intimate skin, they're not particularly enjoyable to use. And you certainly don't particularly want, you know, you don't want to use them elsewhere on your body. And people generally don't really want to have them on show. On the other side, you've got this traditional, much bigger body care category, you know, 236 billion globally. Uh, and whilst they're a really luxurious, enjoyable products to use, uh, they're certainly not formulated for intimate skin. I mean, the number of people in our focus groups that had used original source mint shower gel on their intimate skin and regretted it <laughs> never to do it again is resolve the tensions which exist in, in both categories uh, and create a new category in what we call just the womanhood category. And the Lunar Daily brand is also what's really important to us is that we speak to women you know, we, we understand that women and people with vulvas experiences are not all the same. And that as you go through womanhood from kind of early womanhood, when you get your first period through motherhood and menopause, everyone's experience is different. And therefore having solutions to cater for different stages of women's lives and different skin types and different experiences is really important. So, you know, we are an omni-channel first business. And so as well as our own D2C commerce, we, we partner with retailers and therefore how they position these products is really important. And so, on .com, it's it's easier because actually you've got the ability to list your product based on how the consumer is searching. So if a customer is searching for something for ingrown hairs or for dry skin or a natural body, body shower gel, we can appear in all of those places. In store is where I really think there needs to be a fundamental shift and change. And it's been a really important part of the retailers we've chosen to partner with. You know, We've just launched into Sephora North America as the first ever UK intimate care brand um, with them as a partner into both their stores and online, and we're positioned in body care, and so we are. We are, you know, we're next door to hair care and skincare, and we're in body as we should be. You know, this is just it's just another body part, and so that for me is 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 absolutely amazing. Um, I think where the particularly with this category where we need to evolve is that these products sit within femme hygiene because if you think about the adjacencies of that category, typically you know, long-standing category has been kind of the left of us period products, which typically are bought on a monthly basis, you know, depending on your cycle of around, 20, around a month, uh, or incontinence products, which are typically bought, you know, late in later in life. And therefore having these products, having these products in that category, not only don't make sense from a usage, you know, because these aren't products used on a monthly basis, but also the associated stigma with them, because that's a category that still is often in the kind of dusty back corner of a, of a shop. And so, for me, my dream is that we are just we are just a body care brand anyway, and so we're situated within body. But I think it's also really there's an opportunity for us to also tap into those different usage requirements and different stages of women's lives. Yeah, absolutely love that, and it completely makes sense the way you describe that. Um, you've given like a really good overview there of, of Luna. So um, I guess kind of going back to the early stages, you explained like your personal experience and how that was kind of like the genesis of, of Luna Daily. Um, 
be good to hear where you started out because I know you obviously started the business with like a huge amount of experience in business, branding, marketing, but I assume creating an actual skincare, body care product from scratch is probably not quite in the wheelhouse yet in terms of like knowing the ingredients, doing all the testing. So though going back to the early days, which to be fair was only a year ago, um, yeah, where, where, like what do the early days look like in terms of like funding the first product you went for, um, getting off the ground, what resources you had? Uh, loads of great questions there. So <laughs> the kind of final moment for me was, so I, I quit my job at Charlotte Tilbury in June, 2020. Uh, and I suppose for me, what COVID taught me was that life's short and there's never going to be a good time to do something. And I thought if I don't go and give this a go, I'll live to regret it more than I might regret it. So I think, I think my friends and family thought I was mad like lockdown one, like the whole country's been furloughed or made redundant and I'm quitting, proactively quitting my job. Uh, but I did in June, <laughs> 2020. Um, I suppose the first thing is there's a real kind of practical reality, right? Before you can even get funding off anybody, unless you've got people that really, really, you know, back you, uh, you need to get an MVP, right? You need to get a minimum viable product and you need to show some traction. And so the very first thing I did was find a brilliant designer and an even more brilliant brand strategist to help ideate, you know, even the name and then what our values would be, what our mission would be, what we would stand for, and then what that as a creative world would look like, even kind of product agnostic, you know, coming up with the name Luna Daily. Um, so Luna, De- Luna obviously means the moon in many languages, and the moon is this visibly reassuring yet beautiful daily presence that connects all women everywhere, irrespective of age or stage. And... I also like to think of it as, you know, we're, we're shining a light on a topic that for so long has been kind of in the darkness. Uh, but once we had an idea of brand identity, uh, our values, our, our bigger mission and purpose beyond product, then it was around getting into product detail. And as, look, I am I'm a product packaging geek. Uh, I spent lots of my career in product development, so I'm fortunate that I had a pretty good understanding as to how to go about it. And I'd worked for a pretty formidable woman called Charlotte Tilbury who makes pretty excellent uh, products. And so the next day is going about trying to find partners to make the products. So um, that means working with formulation chemists, uh, uh, lab lab scientists, regulatory experts, but also we have the Lunar Daily Connect Collective that back the Lunar Daily brand. So it's a team of female gynecologists, dermatologists, pelvic floor physiotherapists, and working really closely with them on the formulations. In terms of uh, format, so, you know, it's a category that has been dominated by kind of single wash products. Uh, we knew there was an opportunity to, to look into different formats, particularly the on-the-go format. So our spray-to-wipe innovation is an eco-alternative to single-use wipes. So we knew there was a consumer opportunity in wanting to freshen up on the go, you know, if you're on your period after the gym, rushing about in between meetings, but we just couldn't sign up to the negative impact of single-use wipes. And so we came up with an eco-alternative. So one of our bottles is the equivalent to three-inch wipes. Uh, and and then we went about, I mean, I'm, I, ca- I cannot even remember how many variants of the formulations we had. I think the lab hated us because we went through so many iterations of getting it so perfect. Uh, and then honestly, once we had early kind of signed off formulations that had gone through the necessary stability regulatory checks um and we actually had a we have a trademarked base formulation that runs through our range so getting the kind of necessary legals around that it was at that point that i went out kind of sent the very first investor email and the very first retailer email uh and you know it's amazing that probably if i quit left in june 2020 and 
gosh, you know, COVID, you can like never remember the years, but I think it was about a year later. (laughs) I think it was about a year, just under a year later that we kind of had formulation and MVP ready that we went out to retailers and investors. So that part was, you know, relatively speaking, quite quick. Uh, And that's definitely in part because I had fantastic manufacturer partnerships with, with really reputable manufacturers with great supply relationships, particularly when COVID was meaning everything was kind of up in the air. Uh, and I suppose also, you know, it's been brewing my idea for a few years before that. Um, I won't reveal my age, but teenage years were a long time ago. So I'd had a while to think about it. Nice. nice. So, so you, you finally had a point where you had this approved product you were really happy with. And you mentioned retail partnerships. Like, I think that's the thing when, when I speak to like startup founders of consumer brands, it's hard to know, like, how long do you go? Do you go DTC first and online? Do you go retail? What, what did you start with and where did you want to make traction early on? Uh, well, for me, whether D2C or Omnichannel was a really easy question for two reasons. The first, my entire career has been Omnichannel, and so it's what I know. And the second, make it as easy as possible for women and people with vulvas to buy these products and be where they are currently buying them, the least barrier to purchase. And although we're building a really sustainable D2C business, it's a recognition that majority of the categories is currently bought uh, in retailers, but also that there's a wider trend that we are all busier than ever. We don't want to have, you know, 10 different subscriptions. I have a dog and I last, here's two, and last month I started getting subscription dog food, even though he eats the exact same thing every day. It's just like take even just the effort of signing up to a subscription. And so just, you know, making it as easy as possible for also people to buy these products alongside the wider toiletries. And so the Omnichannel question was really easy. In terms of how kind of how we wanted to strategically um, position the Lunar Daily brand, I suppose from a price point perspective, uh, we're very accessible. So actually, we can bridge both traditional kind of mass and specialist retail. The most important thing for me was partnering with retailers that would help us tell the brand story and that was believing in the female wellness movement in the same way that I was. Uh, fairly early on, I actually turned down a pretty big retailer because they wanted to list us solely in the femme hygiene category. Uh, and it wouldn't have been right for us as a brand and it wouldn't have been right for the story we're trying to tell. And so uh, we started with the UK um, and we're in places like um, John Bell and Croydon, Oliver Bonus, so House Group. We were the first ever brand for Intimate Skin launching to Harrods H Beauty beginning of this year. And so uh, really partnering with retailers that I knew had a fantastic reputation for supporting startup brands and really allowing them to tell their story, but also the wider female wellness movement. And honestly, it's, you know, it's, there is no, everyone will tell you there is no one formula uh, for partnering with retailers. You know, I was lucky that I'd had lots of relationships for my career in this space and I'd, I'd worked with lots of the relevant people at retailers, but it's, you know, it's, it's persistence, persistence and uh, just keep going. And I think a lot of success of any startup I think is yes brilliant product and brand amazing team but a good amount of luck and you know definitely timing the right timing you know I think even if had I launched this a few years ago I think it would have been too early and so the timing has definitely felt very fortuitous for us yeah yeah I know I think any startup founder you speak to luck timing (laughs) hard work (laughs) it all it all plays a massive part um 
In terms of, to talk a bit more about the products actually for a moment, because that's the thing like, when I was looking through, like they look fantastic. I know it sounds like you put a lot of effort into that early on, but also very thoughtful in terms of being very responsible, planet-friendly, the ingredients that are being used. Um, can you share a bit more about, I guess, like the principles that went into building those products, like what you wanted them to stand for, how you wanted them to work, how consumers would, would engage with them? Yeah, Um so I suppose the first kind of three pillars we thought of when developing the products is firstly, we knew we needed products that were gentle enough to use everywhere, including intimate skin. Uh, the second was that they needed to be versatile enough to cope with the changes that women and people with vulvas go through every kind of day, week, month, decade of, of their womanhood experience. And the third is that we want them to be desirable enough that you wanted to use them and want to use them everywhere and you were happy to have them out in the bathroom. But, you know, the ultimate torture test for me is that I go into a bathroom and I see a Luna Daily product on the side of the bathtub, not hidden away in, in a cupboard. Uh, so those are sort of the broad principles. Um, then I could probably split it into sort of two buckets. The first was kind of formulation, what was really, really important to us. And it, is, it was as much what we wanted to put in as what we knew we wouldn't. And so alongside our trademarked base formulation, which is called Thermobion Plus, which is designed to balance, nourish, and strengthen the skin. You know, we don't just wash our faces. We don't want products just to wash our skin. Uh, we had some very strict principles about what we wouldn't put in. So we only use natural and necessary ingredients, so nothing in them that doesn't need to be in there. We never, ever use soap in any of our products. Uh, it's fairly horrific that if you were to think of a pH scale with seven being water, uh, your skin microbiome is typically between about four and five. Uh, soap is is pH 12, bleach for context is pH 13. And so soap by definition is an irritant and it's, yeah, it's fairly horrific. And, uh, and so there's no, you know, actually all of our skin would be better off using pH balanced products everywhere. Uh, and so soap is never used in any of our products. Uh, and I think the final thing then was, so that's kind of from a, in a nutshell on a formulation and then I suppose from a kind of sourcing, packaging, sustainability, it was my mantra is to be to be the very best we can. You know, we are not perfect and I don't think any business can claim to be perfect. Uh, and it's about balancing our impact. And so, you know, all of our ingredients are sustainably, ethically sourced and we have a very transparent supply chain. So we know where each of the ingredients comes from. All of our packaging is made from recycled materials. So, you know, any of our products... Uh, we'll use a minimum of post-consumer recycled plastic and they're fully recyclable. Uh, we're always looking for ways to improve. So at the moment, our spray to wipe, the one part of our spray to wipe, which is currently more difficult to recycle is the pump. And so we're looking at a refill format because ultimately refilling is even better than recyclability. But it's about as a brand balancing. It's a constant balance of doing the best you can whilst respecting ultimately the end, the end person, which is the customer. You know, ultimately it needs to fulfill her needs. Um, and so that's some, honestly, that's something that a word I was taught at the old, my old startup, Vol Foods, was Kaizen, which is this Japanese word for just constant improvement. And it, gen, startup life is like that in general. I think it's the most amazing word when I think about anything in startup world, but particularly around product development, because you can develop something you think is perfect. And then, you know, you get customer feedback or something changes. You know, we remember with our no soap bar. So it's, as the name suggests, it's a solid waterless format that looks like a soap, but has no soap in it. It took the lab five years to develop it. And then it was like, it was cursed. It was like, we found, we, it took us months to have this like perfect formulation that kind of lathered like a soap. It felt like a soap, but there was no soap in it. 
We then had to do something called an industrial trial. It uh, broke the machine. Uh, so it broke the machine so badly that we had to move the entire production to another manufacturer. Then, like, it was just everything kept going wrong. And eventually we got a product to market. Uh, and I suppose I am definitely a perfectionist when it comes to particularly things like formulation. Like, I want them to be absolutely perfect. But even once you think you've got them perfect, it's around listening to customers and iterating and changing and evolving and being comfortable to doing comfortable doing that. Because, you know, it's hard when you think you develop something that's perfect, but then if somebody, you know, even if it's like a design tweak or, you know, a little change in the outer packaging or trying to get rid of the tertiary packaging so we're more sustainable, it's a constant evolvement um, from a product perspective. It definitely is. Uh, yeah, and I've learned that from launching my own products in the last like year and it's things you think that will be used in a certain way or things that you think will work. And then you figure like you watch users using it and you're like, Oh wow, they're actually using it that way. They're clicking on that first. Like you, all these little tweaks, but they all add up to like this great experience for the user. So, um, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but the soap thing's really amazing. <laughs> like soap's been around for so long. I mean, is how has soap become so popular and just thought of as this really healthy option for, for like washing with, is it just super cheap and just been marketed very well over the years? Yeah, I mean, the reason it's become so ubiquitous is because it's so cheap. Uh, without boring you too much on the science of it, soap is a really, really effective surfactant. So what it means is it really, really effectively breaks down grease, dirt, and other grime on our skin. So that if, you, if you use a soap bar, like, I literally feel like that feeling of, like, squeaky clean, but, like, so dry. Like, even after using one, my entire skin yeah. it feels like it's dry, and that's because it's so effective because it's almost the same pH as bleach, uh, that it actually strips your skin of the good and bad, you know, good and bad bacteria. And so, you know, our skin is made up of a very specific microbiome, which is why reflective of that, the pH is about four or five, and it basically strips your skin of everything. And so if you suffer at all from kind of dryness, redness, itchiness, it's highly likely that your washing routine has a part to play in it. So there's no denying it's a very, very effective cleaner, but it's almost so effective, well, it is so effective that it can be actually damaging. Uh, so I don't know if you had this, but during COVID, you know, we were washing our hands to happy birthday every, every day. My hands were awful because, you know, again, if you look at the kind of pH balance of those products or the synthetic harshness of those products. So in short, it's kind of, it's deep rooted, you know, it was one of the first ever ingredients used because it really did effectively clean. And in the olden days where, you know, it wasn't as common to be able to have access to a running shower and it might be a bath a week, it was very, very effective. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's once you kind of, it's not just soap, you know, it's the other ingredients that are fairly cheap and synthetic and widely available. Um, but our bodies would all probably be better using more gentle, um, more natural and more pH balanced products everywhere. A little break from the show. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this. The good news is you can. Go and visit www.jobsforgood.io where they only have four good companies on their platform, ranging from social justice to food waste to climate change and much more. You can filter jobs by impact area, preferred way of working, skill sets, and find the perfect company and position for you. So if you do one thing today, check out www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Um, yeah, I'm thinking back to that when I, I don't really use soap at home, but like uh, if you stay in a hotel, for example, sometimes you use something you wouldn't normally use and you just get out and you just feel like dry. It's like, I think it's a sensation all over and you just feel like you have to go moisturize for like a day or two. Um, 
Cool. And not really a question, but I just want to say like hugely, um, huge fan of, of like the brand that you've, you've built and are, are building. Because I think for me, like as a consumer, it's really hard actually. Like it, you get through a lot of products and it's hard to like have loyalty to one to the other. And I think the ones for me that really stand out, the ones that, that stand for something much larger, like a, a movement, um, trying to build like a better future for people. Um, and from, you know, early days, you said you really focus on that and you can tell from like everything that you, how the products look, the website, how you talk about stuff, your personal brand. Um, so yeah, <laughs> keep it up. Um, the, the kind of last section I want to chat about was uh, just about funding actually, because I think you fairly recently closed out a 3 million uh, seed round. Um, you know, from every founder I speak to, I think um, funding is probably one of the least enjoyable parts of the job. So I just wondered, you know, what was your experience with fundraising and I guess any kind of lessons learned you can share with, with other founders? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it's single-handedly the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And it's single-handedly the proudest achievement of my life. Because uh, I think for a few reasons, you know, we launched the business on the 1st of March, 2022. And about a month in, we'd had some pretty amazing traction from customers and early traction from retailers. So I knew I wanted to go and get our first start, the process of our fund, first fundraise. Even then, there was already murmurings that, you know, the economic climate here in the UK was going to get pretty difficult. And so I budgeted that, you know, if we could get the fundraise done in nine months, we'd be, we'd be doing pretty well. Um, we closed the fundraise on the 1st of March, 2023. So rather serendipitously not planned on our first birthday. But um, <laughs> without having to do that, you can see that took us 11 months. And, you know, it... The reason it ended up taking as longer was was twofold. Partly that it was it just took longer than I thought it might take, but it's also because our our strategy pivoted and changed many times. And so I think my first advice is go into a fundraising, go into a fundraise with a plan, but be very prepared that it will change and pivot all the time. Uh, and so for us, we were going to do a smaller raise, um, about a million pounds. And we were going to use that raise to then get us to our next inflection point, which was to launch some of our big retail and then go out again. And two things happened. Our retail partners massively increased their commitment. So three times, actually, the commitment from Sephora increased. Um, so by the, I think the first, the last time it happened was on like the 22nd of December. Uh, but we went from being kind of online only to being the first ever brand that would be listed in their stores and online and our full range. And so while that was great, I knew that that meant we were going to need more fuel in the fire. But also the idea, once I was in the thick of fundraising, the idea of going and doing this again in six months, I was like, no way. So we went for a full amount, but that took longer. Um, I think my second piece of advice is, is, is don't take no for an answer. So uh, we brought, as part of this fundraise, we brought on two new VC partners. So my lead VC are called Red Rice and supported by a VC called Joyance and They'd been on my radar since kind of even launching the brand, uh, both phenomenal early stage consumer funds. And when I'd when I started the fundraise process, I went out to Red Rice, who are now my lead. And, you know, we went through the processes. And after a few months, you know, they said, look, you're just that bit too early. You know, just go and get a bit more, bit more traction and come back to us. And so when I got the increased commitment from Sephora, I WhatsApped Tom, the founder, and said, you know, you know, I've got some news. Can we chat? And I said, you know, you know how you said no. Would you reconsider? And uh, you know, we went back through the processes, and at four p.m. on Christmas Eve, uh, Red Rice said yes. And so, you know, the truth, you know, it's truth that we probably had been too early, and we had some new news 
and new momentum and new proof points. Uh, but, you know, go back out to them. They were who I really wanted. And just because they'd said no, uh, going, you know, not taking no for an answer. Um, but it was, it was really, really tough in the last quarter of the year. You know, I had planned to fund, to close the fundraise in Q4. And so we were running out of money. So I had to put another director's loan into the business. So when I first started the business, it was self-funded. So I put another loan into the business of my own money because otherwise we would have, we would have completely run out of money. Uh, and it was a really difficult time because I was really burnt out and I needed in any other scenario, I'd be, you know, I'm able to, I can track now my trigger signs of when I'm getting a bit burnt out and I know what I need to do to not get burnt out. And one of the things I need to do is to switch off for a few days and go and go to a gig or ridiculous workout or go to Lana Beach yeah, yeah. and not be with my phone. None of which I could do because, uh, you know, I was had to do the fundraise. And so it was really, really hard. And yeah, the hardest thing I've ever had to do. And also because we're not taught about it, right? It's it's in that same bucket of like politics and mortgages and pensions that we're just not taught at school. And so it's something you have to self-teach. And, you know, there are stats out there, you know, I don't know whether my experience would have been different or easier had I been a man, because I'm not a man. And so I only know my own gendered experience. Uh, and, you know, so whether or not it's more difficult for a woman, I can't say because it's not, you know, I only know my own experience. And I also have to accept that I'm also in a privileged position in terms of my background and up- upcoming. Um, but it's it it's a tough it's a tough road. And I think my final piece of advice is everyone tells you to network, which I agree with. I think networking is brilliant. But what's been absolutely essential for me is having mates that get it. And so I've got a few other founders that are some of them, you know, ahead of me in the in their journey that I genuinely could call and they could call me about anything of like any question, no question is too stupid. You know, they're really there for you because they really get it. And you need those people that are beyond like networking, people that like truly get what you're going through and that can like offer you help because, you know, you, you can do only so much self-teaching, but learning off, off others and how, how they've approached it is is phenomenally helpful. Oh, tons of good advice in there. Yeah, I think... Um that's why like founders just impress me as people because like 95% of the job is stuff you could never have been kind of prepared for and it's stuff you have to learn on the job and quickly adapt to um and yeah secondly your point about having like a you know, network of peers absolutely like I've got to say like a small group of business owners we, we sit in a similar space are you seeing this going on at the moment how are you getting on like just those those some of it's just a bit reassuring sometimes it's like a really tough day or you need to have a proper conversation with someone and sometimes just friends and family aren't equipped to have those conversations just don't get it in the same way so that's i think really really good advice um and it kind of takes me into the next section which is chatting to you a bit casey about like your your founder journey um you already mentioned there kind of some of the challenges and, and like things you had to pick up and um I guess I was going to ask, like, what, what surprised you most about the founder job? Because you worked in early stage startup before, but it's different when it's your business and you're the founder. Like, what's been the biggest surprise in terms of the role and, and like, what's the toughest part of the job? Uh, I'll do the second one first. It's easy to answer. And then I'll think about the surprises. The toughest part for me as a founder is switching off. And the reason that's the toughest part is because for the most part, I don't want to switch off because I absolutely love it. Like I, I, I adore it. Like I, I, and everything about it, I adore. And so I don't want to switch off because I, I literally will happily like work away with a glass of red wine. Like I don't want to stop doing this, but actually the reason you need, yeah. I think it's so important. You need to learn how to switch off is because it becomes all consuming and it's not always 
always happy and jolly and it, there's times when it's really, really tough. And when it's really tough, if you haven't equipped yourself with the skills of how to switch it off, it's really hard to do so. And, you know, it's, it's one thing just saying to somebody, I'll oh, just go and my coach uh, really helped me identify like what my values are and your values are the things like beyond work, like they transcend work and personal life. They're like these things that, that give you a reason to live and like get you up in the morning and give you the most energy. And she was help, help, uh, she was able to identify that for me, two of my values I was missing was freedom and fun. And that sound was really important to me because I talked about, you know, I've been to see Coldplay an embarrassing number of times, but if I'm at a Coldplay gig, I don't think about anything but Coldplay. And uh, having those values and really being clear about what gives you energy outside of work is not important just for like healthy work-life balance. I don't want to wake up in my 60s and be like, cool, I ran a great company, but I didn't have anything else. But uh, also for when the times are tough, you're able to have those things that, that really help you switch off or get get value from something else. So my most difficult thing actually is, is switching off and it's something I'm really working on because for when the times are tough, you need to be able to. Uh, the biggest surprise, um, I think maybe like how helpful people are that when I set out to start the business, I wrote a list of the best people I'd ever met in my career in their function. So, you know, if you take commercial marketing, supply chain people, and I wrote down a list of dream people, and then I went out to try and get them to help me. And in those early stages, you know, you can't pay people, you know, it's, and it's amazing how the support I've managed to rally around me, like my group of advisors are like the best people I've ever met in my career. Um, And, it's amazing how many people want to help you if you just ask. And I think it kind of shows what drives other people in life. And it's not all, you know, yes, clearly, you know, there's an element of, you know, we all need to earn a wage and we all need to be successful, but people get success and get value from other things. And so that's what I've been really pleasantly surprised by that throughout the journey, you know, when the announcement about the fundraise came out, the number of messages I had off people and people that I know are probably still struggling in a fundraise, but saying like, I'm so proud and I'm like cheering you on from afar, like from complete strangers. And that's what surprised me in a really lovely way. Oh, that's a great one. Um, but two, two absolute nuggets of advice. I think the first one is building out that list of, of like contacts from over the years in different areas. Like it sounds really simple, but I bet lots of people don't do that. Um, and secondly, yeah, I, I experienced the same thing. Like people just genuinely want to help you. Um, and I think even more so if you're working in what I'd call tech for good, but you know, whether that's impact, sustainability, whatever you want to call it, I think if you have something where it's like a really important mission that people also buy into really quickly and they see how important that is, um, even you know, random people will reach out and offer help or advice or like, if you get to this point, let me know if I can help with this, that kind of thing. And it's um, great for reassurance. It's great to know people out there. And I think it's also like, I'm working on the right thing. Like people care about this and, and, um, want to help on that, on that mission. Um, my next question was going to be about personal branding, because I feel like there's a lot of pressure on founders to do lots of different things. And it's kind of like, how much can you do? But I feel like more and more, there's an expectation now for founders to create like quite a compelling personal brand and be reactive on certain social channels. I feel like you're one of those people that naturally has a great voice on, on social media and, and you talk about something super important. Um, you know, do you, th- do you think today for a startup founder, it's really important they do start to invest in building a personal brand? And, and secondly, like, what difference can that make to, to the business as well? I think it's completely dependent on the founder and on the business. That I think, you know, for me with this business, it was very clear early on that my story was the thing that 
people could connect with. And therefore, and I was really comfortable and I thought it was really important that I was comfortable sharing it. And so I think it's completely dependent on the business. You know, there are lots of businesses, lots of examples of businesses where the founder is not the face of the business and they can be superbly successful brands. Um, but if I think about other brands, you know, if you think about Michelle Kennedy and LV, um, sorry, Michelle Kennedy and Peanut, um, and the LV brand and lots of other female founded brands, you know, where there is an authentic personal founder story, I do think it strengthens it because I think it's, it's a, it's a point of difference, particularly versus the big boys, you know, some the big incumbent brands, lots of them don't have a personal story or they do, but it's so old that people have forgotten it. And so I think for us, it's definitely the right thing and it feels really comfortable to me, but I don't think it's an essential. And, you know, you said earlier, it's difficult because we get pulled in so many directions. It's got to bring you energy. Otherwise it's not worth your time. You know, I, feel more comfortable on LinkedIn than I do on TikTok or Instagram. But my team are brilliant at saying, right, Katie, you've got five minutes, go and shoot this TikTok for us because we need this. But my team are fantastic at like getting me in the right place. And also I just got really comfortable with just like not caring as much that, you know, those channels are around just being authentic. And it's to be honest, the only way I know, like the minute you put me in front of like a script and I, I'm not great, uh, but LinkedIn, I feel a lot more comfortable on. And so that's the kind of channel that I've honed in on that I feel most comfortable on. Uh, but is it a personal brand thing or is it just for me, it's just what I think. And it's just, it's not, it's not as curated as I sometimes think the wording personal branding. I actually got, you know what? I got a LinkedIn message yesterday that said, hi, Katie, despite you having so many followers on LinkedIn, you're not capitalizing on your personal branding. And, you know, I could get you these. And I was like, oh, I'm a bit offended that you don't think I've got a personal brand. Yeah. Yeah. It's not something I've like proactively like curated and kind of in the same way I think about how the Lunar Daily brand is perceived, but that is just who I am and what I think. And so I suppose it's that the language has had a bit of a bad, potentially a bad rep. And I think a bit of a pressurizing rep on people thinking you have to curate this personal brand in the same way that you create your brand and that you are one and the same. And, you know, yes, we're inherently connected, but I just talk about what I find interesting or what I'm passionate about. And I suppose the beauty of these social platforms is that people don't like, well, hopefully people don't then resonate badly with the brand. Um, so yeah, I can't, that was kind of a politician's answer, wasn't it? I didn't really answer it either way. <laughs> no, I think that was, that was pretty fair. I think, I think the key thing you hit on was authenticity. Like I, I think whether it's a company yeah. brand or a personal brand, that that's the key differentiator that people will always see through. And um, like you said, I, I, you don't have to do it. I don't, I don't think there's, you could have a really successful business if you are, you know, someone's quite active on socials or not, but I think um, if you are going to do it, then know why you're doing it and just stay authentic and yeah. it will work out, I'm sure. Yeah, and that's a really good point, Craig, of knowing why you're doing it. Like for me, I'm very clear that my mission, the brand's mission, is to inspire women to connect with each other and their entire bodies. So for me, success of my own personal brand, let's call it, is that if I inspire somebody else to talk or to have a conversation or I get a message saying, oh, I read this and then I you know, I then spoke to this person about this, that for me is success. And that's a very, you know, it's a different, in a way it's very aligned to our metrics as a business, but I think being really clear about why you're doing what you're doing ultimately makes it an easy decision as to whether it's the right thing for you and your brand. 
Absolutely. Yeah. If you're just out there chasing fantasy metrics or not really sure why you post about stuff, it's, it's never going to end well. Um, final section was just chatting to you a bit about you know, growing the business, um, particularly from like a hiring perspective. And um, from what I could do, like see from research and go through LinkedIn, it looks like you've kind of been building out the core team over the last year. Um, away from specific skill sets, like when it comes to more kind of general values, attributes, like what, what do you look for in people? Like what have you looked for in those people you've hired so far? So... Uh, I'm a big believer in attitude over aptitude. Um, I, I believe, you know, in, yes, prior experience is really important for certain functions, but having the right attitude and belief in our bigger vision is the most important thing above everything. Like you can teach aptitude in, in lots of functions. Uh, we have four brand values we live and breathe by both internally and externally. Those are inviting, spirited, thoughtful and direct. And so in every person we hire, we look for, for those four things. Um, so inviting, you know, we always invite new ideas and we're open to new opinions or new ways of doing things. Spirited is having that positive energy and belief in our kind of spirited mission. Thoughtful, you know, we are thoughtful in everything we do, but we're also direct. And so, you know, no beating around the bush, no funny euphemisms. Uh, and so those four values we absolutely absolutely look like, look oh, look for in people. Um, controversially, I don't don't use recruiters. Maybe controversial, maybe not. It's just in this early stage, I'm so clear of the type of experience that we need and also the the people. And so actually, to date, all of our hiring has been done just by ourselves. Um, I'm sure we'll get to a point where you know brilliant recruiters will be very helpful. Um, and then gut feel, and it's an area that. I haven't always followed. I've had a couple of instances where, you know, every business I'm sure doesn't quite hire the right, right person sometimes. And whenever that's happened, it's been in my gut and I wasn't a hundred percent sure. And, uh, there's a wonderful woman called Emma Heal, who is the MD of Lucky Saint. And she said to me, or she shared a deck that she'd said, um, Amazon have a principle where whenever they hire a new person, they have to believe that that person is better than at least 50% of the people that work in the company, which sounds kind of brutal. And in startup world, that's hard because you have like, not very many people. Um, and that, you know, A team attracted A team, whereas B team attracted C team. And the final thing was Dan Germain, who was the creative director in and said it's better to have a hole than an asshole. And trusting your gut <laughs> and not just your own gut, but the guts of other people around you. So every single person in the Lunar Daily team will have an interaction with somebody before we hire them in. And, you know, trust in your gut. Um, but if it's not right or you've got a niggle, it's not right. It probably isn't. Yeah, no, uh, um, again, lots of good I advice. Final, uh, definitely the last bit. <laughs> but the final thing is that like recruiting somebody brilliant in is literally the very beginning. Then it's about like, main, you know, making sure that person has an incredible onboarding making sure they feel supported because every time I've started a new job, including this job, after like, it normally happens to me within the first 12 weeks, I have this like complete vomit feeling of like, what have I done? I can't do this. I've made a massive mistake. So being cognizant of the fact that other people might be feeling that and then making sure that they feel like, you know, the basics of just like really clear, smart objectives of things that are often, you know, even in big companies I've worked for have been overlooked of having fearless feedback, having a feedback culture, that it's not just in your reviews that you get feedback. And, you know, actually the hiring is, the very beginning bit of building a brilliant A team. It's then actually making them want to stay because 
that, uh, my final quote, and Emma Hill, if she listens to this, is going to be like, Katie's taking all my good stuff. <laughs> she said was, um, uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And, you know, you can have the best strategy in the world, but ultimately it's your people that live on that strategy. So you've got a shit culture. You know, no one's going to be happy or want to work. And so it, it trumps everything for me. It's the single most important thing of my job is is, is my people. 100%. I could not agree with you more. Um, and I, I guess in terms of kind of kind of linked to like getting the most out of people and, and like the culture you're building, um, when it comes to like ways of working, obviously still a fair amount of debate going on between like what works for people, remote, hybrid, office-based, like what, what do you do at Lunar Daily and, and, and like yeah, which approach do you advocate? Yeah. So the first thing as a startup is what can you afford? Uh, the, it's all very well saying we'd love to have a hybrid or trendy workspace with Thursday beers and all the rest of it, but practically an early stage startup can't necessarily do that. And so for the first year of our business, I was really fortunate that one of our investors lent us an office space. So he didn't need it on certain days of the week. And so he lent it to us those days. Um, so I was very, very lucky that, again, I just asked for help. I just reached out to everybody and said, does anybody, I can't afford an office space. Does anybody have one? Uh, now we're fortunate that we've got an office space in a kind of shared workspace. So we have our dedicated office, but we're in a building that's got lots of other cool companies in there. And so we currently have a hybrid model. You know, I think everybody that I know is craving in-person connection again, and but also realizing that not everybody's work from home environment is ideal. So we have an office that's available five days a week and we have certain days we're all committed to being in. Uh, we also, just to make sure that doesn't ring. Um, we also involve the team in, in our kind of benefits policy, you know, um, from the very beginning, we've worked four and a half days a week. We started out proposing we were going to do a four-day working week. And actually, the team fed back that the idea of having to finish on the first day was actually more stressful. So we have Friday Friday mornings where there's a no-meeting policy. You wrap up your admin, you get ready for the week the week ahead, and then you clock off at one o'clock for the weekend every single every single week, every single week of the year. Uh but also involving the team of, in our wider kind of benefits policy. You know, something's only a benefit if it's perceived a benefit to the people it's intended for. And so we've actually involved, we're actually evolving our sort of benefits policy at the moment. And we've really involved the team. It's just like, what, what would be important to you? Or what would be more important to you of these things to make sure that the, the things we're offering are really of value to people? And it was some of the things surprised me, you know. Luckily, Friday finishes was at the top of everybody's list. They definitely wanted to keep those. But, you know, pension came up really top which and pension came ahead of some of the other things that I assumed would be important to people. And so I think involving the people that are intended for, um, but you know, you can't, and the final thing is you can't, you can't create a, to- a culture. You can't create a culture top down. You know, it, it definitely is led by people driving for the business because they're the representation of what the business is believing in, but it's something that has to come organically from the people within. And so it's a balance of having, process processes in place but also having the agility to change process uh, and also allowing and inviting opinions from from others in the team so that ultimately my ultimate vision is that Luna Daily is the happiest place to work that we that we foster positive brain health uh, and that people feel really really happy and I think that comes from being satisfied in their job role but also comes from working for a company that supports their needs both in and outside of work. 
No, and exactly. And and the way you do that, like you said, is by listening to the people and, and what they want. Like it sounds so simple, but you'd be surprised how many companies just try and dictate this is how it's going to work, these are the benefits we're going to offer, et cetera, et cetera, rather than just asking like what would actually help you the most, what would make your life better. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's it's a balance, you know. For example, uh, next month we're all um we're all gonna be undertaking mental health first aid training. And that's not something you know, people can opt out if they want to, but it was actually something that we just felt was really important. Um, when you look at the statistics, particularly, particularly of younger people, of the incidents of mental health and of suicide, uh, the ins- actually, I'm not going into detail on it, but it's a brilliant, a brilliant initiative. And there's a guy called Harry Corrin, who we're working really closely with, who's going to be running our program for us. And every single person in the business uh, will be mental health first aid trained from next month. Nice. Well, look, um, that probably wraps it up, Katie. I mean, it's, I could chat to you for hours. It's been like a really del- delightful conversation, but I'm sure you have other stuff to get on with. So um, for anyone listening that wants to follow the Lunar Daily Journey, like where, where are you most active on socials? So from a brand perspective, uh, our Instagram and our TikTok, uh, we are Lunar Daily Official or Lunar underscore Daily underscore Official. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm Katie Cottom uh, and pretty good at replying to messages so you're very welcome to reach out to me directly on there awesome well look, thanks again for coming on the show it's been a real pleasure and um, yeah wish you all the best Greg thanks so much for having me an absolute pleasure that's it for today's episode thanks for listening and if you haven't done so already please subscribe and leave a review better yet tell a friend about the show the more people we can get involved the more hope we have for making the world a better place this episode was brought to you by Craig Turner produced by Jabril Al-Sahami and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.